Welcome to episode 44 of EIU Panthers Podcast. I'm your host, Rich Moser. With the ever-changing landscape of college athletics, we thought it would be a good time to visit and get an update on some of those changes with Kirsten Kleckner-Alt, EIU's Associate Athletic Director for Compliance and Senior Woman Administrator. Kleckner-Alt talks about how several rule changes have impacted her job and what got her interested in working in compliance at the NCAA level. A former collegiate golfer, she also gives us her experiences with the game and how she competes now for fun and as a former student athlete. Like this episode of EIU Panthers Podcast and want to hear other archived episodes? Then search EIU Panthers Podcast wherever you get your favorite shows. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio Podcasts. Consolidated Communications is a proud sponsor of Eastern Illinois Athletics. Learn more about the future of broadband for your home or business by visiting consolidated.com today. In EIU Athletics news this week, Congratulations to several EIU baseball players who earned all Ohio Valley Conference honors, including shortstop Trey Sweeney, who was named the OVC Player of the Year. Sweeney is the fourth EIU player to win this award. The EIU men's and women's track and field teams are in Texas this weekend, competing at the NCAA West Regional. EIU advanced seven individuals and the women's 4x100 relay team to compete in the event hosted by Texas A&M. Stay up to date on the latest news, schedules, statistics, and more by visiting the EIU official athletic website, eiupanthers.com, or you can follow us on Twitter at EIU underscore Panthers. Now to this week's episode of EIU Panthers podcast with EIU Associate AD for Compliance and Senior Woman Administrator, Kirsten Kleckner-Alt. And welcome to another edition of EIU Panthers podcast. We're joined today by... Kirsten Kleckner-Alt, the EIU Associate Athletic Director for Compliance and the Senior Woman Administrator. So thanks for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Now, one of the reasons we wanted to have Kirsten on here, she is a former student athlete, so we are going to get into some of her, I guess, exploits as a student athlete and, and accomplishments. But one of the things, compliance doesn't ever seem to be the attractive thing, but I would say right now with a lot of the impending legislation in the NCAA and dates that people may or may not be aware of coming up. Compliance may be one of the more exciting places to be right now in athletics. I, I mean, I would think so. I'm a little bit biased maybe, but it's uh, it's definitely a hot topic these days for sure. Now, we say that one of the things we talked about with the dates, June 1 is a big date. It's If you circle dates on your calendars, this would be the date every college coach in America has circled. The fact that they're going to be able to go out and finally re- recruit again, I guess from a compliance standpoint, what does that mean from for you? How difficult does it make your job? Well, I mean, it's kind of a return to normal, right? Um, when you sign up for the gig, you know that helping co- coaches recruit and get out on the road in the right ways at the right times is one thing that, that encompasses. So um, I know our coaches are excited to get back out on the road. I'm sure that our prospective student athletes are going to be excited to see them. So um, I guess anything and everything that I can help do make that transition back to normal as smooth as possible would be good. Now, while I say June 1 is the date coaches can circle, it also falls in, and it's interesting, that, and I guess maybe unfortunate for a few coaches, that it's dead periods for a few of them, and I'm sure in their minds it's already been a dead period for the last 14 months. Yeah, so each sport is going to go back to their sport-specific calendar. So when we say things are opening up on June 1, um, that obviously pertains to most sports, but yes, a couple of our sports will be in quiet periods, meaning that they cannot... Um, go off campus and meet with those PSAs, but those PSAs can certainly come to campus and visit with our coaches then. 
So when you say re return to normal, I guess in, in the old normal, and it, these words, the nor word normal gets thrown around way too much nowadays, so, so forgive me on that. But in the old normal, a, recruiting, a recruit could go to campus to visit X amount of times, and every sport was a little bit different. Coaches could go do in-home visits. Is that where it's kind of going back to, or over the last 14 months due to COVID, have you seen some rule changes that things are going to be a little bit different than had they been in the past? It'll pretty much go back to normal. So every PSA gets a total of five official visits, one per institution. Obviously, if they're a multi-sport student athlete, it's still just one visit. So those coaches are going to coordinate and make sure they're both getting time with that PSA. But yeah, overall, it's it's a complete return to normal. Um, we haven't really seen any changes in terms of like the number of visits that certain sports are allowed to provide within a year. Um, could that change? Absolutely. I think that's one thing that we've seen over the last 14 months is kind of expect the unexpected and things change a lot. So that, that could change moving forward. Now, a couple other things that are big on the in the compliance realm that really impact your area but impact college athletics as a whole is, is the term transfer portal. We talked about how the word normal has been thrown around everywhere. The, the other term people are hearing all the time is transfer portal. Maybe explain to the to the lay person that listens to this exactly what that is yeah so i mean think of it like a, a database maybe like hate to con uh, compare our student athletes to employees but um think of it as some type of database where coaches can go in and look for student athletes that are looking to be placed with an institution um, i think this year maybe more so than in the past with the uptick and transfers we're seeing for the guys and gals that receive that additional year of eligibility that's definitely inflated those numbers a little bit um, but essentially what it is is a student athlete were to come in they talk to me and they say, or their coach, and say, hey, I'm interested in either weighing my options or transferring. Now, some schools handle that a little bit differently. Um, I've seen coaches say, that's fine, you know, maintain your roster spot. If you want to come back, we're happy to have you. I've also seen the flip side, where if that student athlete's interested in weighing their options, the coach says, hey, you know, thanks for your time, but I got to go out and recruit your replacement. So um, there's, a, I would say, a good spectrum there in terms of how institutions and how coaches respond to that type of interest. But um, yeah, overall, I, I would imagine that that's going to continue to grow and change. Now, I, I think or I, I feel like the transfer portal, as people perceive it, has been there actually for a, a long period of time. I think it's just mainly come into the into the forefront and the limelight the last couple of years. And, and I, I think now that it's maybe more in, in the forefront, have you noticed that other sports seem to kind of maybe understand it a little bit more? And maybe that's why it, it's come to the forefront. You, you always hear about the football players and the basketball players that transferred, but now you're seeing tennis athletes and swimmers and cross-country runners using that 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 same leverage in a, an opportunity that is there for them yeah i would say there were two really big events that impacted that space in the last five years the first was obviously the setup of the transfer portal as we know it today so that happened in october of 2019 where the ncaa actually created this space where there's a listing that all college coaches can go in and access this list of student athletes the second thing that really changed us in the last few months was this new uniform one-time transfer exception that the NCAA is allowing for 4-4 undergraduate transfers. So under the old rules, in terms of what's called permission to contact, that system kind of got done away with. The schools no longer have the ability to restrict a student athlete wanting to transfer. Um, we've also seen conferences lift their intra-conference transfer rules, which I think has also resulted in some movement there. And then, like you mentioned, obviously some sports previously, you would see maybe a handful of transfers within a year. Um, but certainly sports now like football, basketball, baseball that were previously more restricted, we're definitely going to see an uptick in those sports. Now, you, you mentioned that in your, your statement. Part of this seemed to be the NCAA is real big on student opportunity, student welfare. And for those that may not understand it beforehand in this except in the rare instances where it 
kind of got really ugly where a coach wouldn't give permission or a school wouldn't give permission for a student athlete to transfer. That no longer, that ability is no longer there. So if, if Kirsten wants to transfer from Eastern, the coach of your sport can't say no. You have that opportunity now. Correct. So, yeah, under permission to contact the old model prior to October 2018, the school actually could stop someone um, from being released, quote-unquote, until a year had passed. Now that model's gone, the student-athlete can literally just come in and say, listen, I'm interested in transferring. Um, under kind of that, I would say that middle ground between October of 2018 up until we recently saw the OVC changes intra-conference transfer rule, our coaches could restrict a transfer from going anywhere in the conference. Um, but that was more a conference rule that we enforced, and now that rule has completely also changed. So, I mean, you could see um, student-athletes bouncing in between OVC schools and playing right away in any sport. Now, two other things that are kind of on the forefront. One is, I think, just passed in the legislation, maybe even touched on this a second ago, is the ability to now not have to sit when you transfer. In some sports previously, and football and basketball are the ones that, because they get the most attention, not that they're any anything more special to them, but... I think there was the rules were in place for those, and a lot of times you would see a student would transfer have to sit. You always hear that terminology. That the NCAA has changed some of those legislation. They have. Um, the, I would say going back in the last six months, we saw them adopt a non-recruited or non-scholarship transfer exception. So that was a space where even if you were potentially in football or basketball, if you were a walk-on in those sports, you could potentially transfer and not have to sit right away. Um, that exception is less commonly used in those sports. Now with the new uniform one-time transfer exception, that's the one that's going to come up the most often. So as long as they previously have not transferred from a four-year school to another four-year school, um, and as long as they're leaving that prior institution academically eligible, they should be in good shape to be able to use that exception at the undergraduate level. Now the other term that's thrown out there, and I go backwards and forwards on these these three-letter, um, I guess, anagram, is that the right term there? Um, it's N-I-L instead of N-L-I. N-L-I is National Letter of Intent. You will hear that num that name that term is used all the time in college athletics, but N-I-L, which is name, image, and likeness, that's on the forefront right now. And I know when we talked before we started here, you're not even 100% comfortable, and you're our compliance person on this. I guess just kind of in a, in a nutshell, what – what is it going to be? What is it? Or, or is that even not even sure yet? Yeah, I would say my best answer right now is I don't know. Um, but what I can say is that I think they created a working group, the NCAA did, um, going back about two years. So obviously this issue has been at the forefront of conversations over the last several months. Um, we actually saw a really big push right prior to COVID at the start of 2020 um, to adopt some formal legislation in that space. And then COVID hit mid-March and that kind of got our attention for the rest of 2020. Um, and now finally that the pandemic is a little bit more manageable. Um, there's been a return obviously to looking at some of this NIL legislation. I think that's also been prompted by a lot of states passing statewide legislation. The issue we're running into right now is that as much as the NCAA wants to adopt a certain standard, NCAA legislation by itself is not going to trump state laws. And so we're going to have to see some type of movement or action at a congressional level for there to be a federal standard. And hopefully, you know, there's some discussions and I'm sure there are going on between our Congress members and the NCAA office to make sure that whatever it is the NCAA ends up adopting legislatively aligns with whatever Congress ends up enacting. Now, uh, basically the way I understand it and is the name, image, and likeness, what it would do is allow student athletes an opportunity to create income through various ways of their own name, image, and likeness. Um, so when you talk about the NLI or N NIL, like I said, I'm going to get those backwards a, a couple times here. Several states have already put those together. I know the state of Illinois, there's evidently, as we speak today, there's a chance that 
that legislation in the state of Illinois may go through. I've read things that some universities and states that have this feel like right now this gives them maybe a recruiting advantage over other schools. Potentially. Um, and I think there's a lot of variety in that NIL space in terms of what types of activities may or may not be permissible. Um, in terms of the latest draft of NCAA legislation that we've seen, they're obviously looking at making it an equal playing field between an NCAA student athlete and just a general student at an NCAA institution. So in terms of that individual's ability to market themselves um, and make money off of their own private commercial endeavors, we're trying to strike a balance there. Um, I think the space that we're going to get into a lot more conversation is when it involves agents, use of agents and trying to avoid pay for play. That's still an area that the NCAA is really trying to take a hands off approach towards um, to try and maintain what they consider to be an amateur definition. Now, as we said, compliance, uh, uh, not the, the run of the mill, boring thing that I think a lot of people think. And it's one of the reasons a lot of people really don't get into compliance. So as you can hear from, from talking to, listening to Kirsten speak here on the podcast, a lot of things on the forefront at you. When you were getting into compliance a number of years ago, are these any of the things that, that you kind of saw down the road or is this like a whole new landscape? I would say NIL definitely moved quicker than I thought. Um, I think when I was initially getting into compliance, we some of the, saw some of the class action lawsuits where FBS football and basketball players were asking for the NCAA to increase the amount of scholarship they were able to receive. And I think the NIL conversation is just a derivative of that, that effect. Um, did I sign up knowing that these were the types of issues that would come up again with NIL? Probably not. Um, I think one thing that I've really learned over, you know, the last three, four years of my career is that, um, there can be a lot of changes that are unanticipated. And even now knowing that NIL is going to be adopted without knowing what that framework looks like, it makes it a little bit challenging to plan for it. Right. Um, being at a smaller institution and a little bit smaller staffed, we need to be cognizant of where we're spending our time. So as of right now, I'm saying I know it's coming down the road, but in terms of actually planning for it, I want to wait and see what this legislation looks like, both at the NCAA level and then either at the state and the federal level before we start putting anything in place. Now, unlike some of the other people that we have here on the guests, a lot of times there are former student athletes, former coaches, and I always ask them how they got into this. I guess for you, we're going to talk about the athletic side of of your career as well. But right now, from a compliance standpoint, how did you kind of fall in to compliance? Yeah, I mean, I I was interested in law school um, as I was going through high school, but never quite sold on the idea of being in court and and actually litigating. Um, I really enjoyed the reading aspect. I really enjoyed the the writing aspect. I would say writing is definitely something that I, I pride myself on and I enjoy doing. Um, but also just being a problem solver. You know, I think that's one thing in in the legal field, like people are coming to you with problems that they need help solving. So that was definitely a carryover when it came to compliance. Why NCAA Um, coming from Canada, maybe not having a similar landscape from that standpoint. It was something that I was very fortunate to to get involved with through the recruiting process. And after playing down here in the U.S. for a couple of years, I wanted to come back, um, had the opportunity to go to SIU Carbondale and obviously finish my law degree there. And then also just... Um, I say luck, obviously there was hard work that went into this, but I I was very, very fortunate to to land a graduate assistantship in compliance at SIU Law. Um, The timing of that, had that not lined up, I can't tell you that I'd be sitting in this chair today. So um, very grateful for those folks down there who made this opportunity possible for me. Now, you mentioned this, you you do have a law degree, you have gone to school, you have passed the bar, um, and I think in multiple states, if I'm not mistaken on that, um, we've had a previous conversation but you just mentioned it there. You never had any intent of doing the the courtroom stuff, and I don't. I think a lot of times, I think 
maybe people, the only impression of a lawyer they get is who they see on TV or in a movie and that type of character, not realizing there are so many different other areas that the law encompasses. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you kind of knew early on that the courtroom wasn't the side you were going to be driven towards. Yeah. So I would say like litigating is a lot of it. You also see a lot of transactional attorneys. So just doing maybe smaller settings, um, helping people draft contracts or negotiate business agreements, things like that. And again, could I do it? Yes. Was it where my passion lied? Probably not. Um, coming out of law school though, I didn't rule that out. Um, I worked a lot in immigration law actually for a couple of internships while I was in school, just in the off chance that timing wise, there wasn't an NCAA compliance opportunity available when I graduated. So again, very fortunate that this position at Eastern opened up. It was a fairly easy transition, just moving two and a half hours up the road. Um, and yeah, I really have thrived here, I think, and enjoyed my time at Eastern. Now, I ask about the, the law degree part because I, I feel like if you look at compliance directors, it, it, a lot of times at the big NCAA institutions nowadays, they tend to be people with legal backgrounds, which was not the case maybe 15, 20 years ago. Is that, you're involved in that heavily, is that kind of a trend you have seen nationwide as well? Because there are so many of these intricacies we've talked about earlier in the podcast. I think the, the legal background definitely helps someone just kind of have a broader understanding of both risk management, liability issues, and then also just legislative issues like we're seeing right now with name, image, and likeness. Do you need a law degree to go into NCAA compliance? No. Um, is it an asset? Absolutely. So I would say if there's anyone kind of on the fence or if you think this is an area that might interest you and you're not sure what to go to for, for graduate school, I don't think law school is going to hurt you. Um, it opens a lot of doors and I mean even if it doesn't work out in the compliance world like you said there's a lot of different practice areas and a lot of different ways that you can utilize that degree to help people. Now the other two areas that, that you work in here at Eastern Illinois one of your other titles is senior woman administrator for people that don't necessarily understand what what that title does it, it is essentially usually the highest ranking female executive administrator in, in an athletic department but what did you maybe not know about that role that you've learned since you've gone in there that that maybe surprised you that oh I didn't realize that's what this person does yeah I think there's definitely a lot more involvement in search committees than I originally thought there would be which I mean I'm, I'm grateful for right in terms of wanting to make sure that we're diversifying our department um, obviously being a female is part of it not having the ethnic background that's something that I need to make sure that we're still targeting and making sure that we're getting those types of perspectives on those searches but um, I would say being involved with the search committees as frequently as I am was one piece that was new um, I would also say just working more hand in hand with our coaches. I think wearing the compliance hat in addition to the SWA hat makes that relationship better um, for, a, for a multitude of reasons. But I think that overall, it, it just helps us work more in unison together in terms of what truly is in the best interest of the department and not maybe necessarily just a specific team. Now, the other duty or job you have, a role, and it's not publicized anywhere on our websites is I guess you would by default be the, the interim golf coach occasionally that um, Kirsten had, had played golf in, in college, and we're going to talk about that here, here briefly. But you do fill in occasionally you help Coach Monsell when he's not able to go. Sometimes there's conflicts with both teams are on, on the road at the same time. It, I guess uh, you enjoy that experience, I'm guessing, being a former golfer. Yeah, I mean, Coach Monsell's great. Um, obviously, any excuse that I have to, to get out on the road with the team, especially with the golf team, um, I'm, I'm happy to take it. Um, that's where being a one-woman compliance shot makes it a little bit tough. If I could do it every tournament, I absolutely would. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I've been fortunate to travel with them. 
Um, worked pretty closely, I think, with our women's team and then got to travel with the men this past OVC tournament. So um, just building those relationships and going back to your previous question in terms of being an SWA, like building those relationships with our student athletes and figuring out what it is that they're looking for in their experience here. Um, if there's anything that I can help with or even just to get positive feedback, um, I think that's helpful. It's just one more way to, for me to gather information from our student athletes to better our department. Now, helping out with a golf team is not new to you by any means when you when you started here. As we mentioned, you did golf in college, but you also were helped with the golf team when you were at, at Southern Southern Illinois. And side note there is, most people don't know this, is your, your sister was on the golf team at the time. Did, and I guess without getting you in trouble compliance-wise here, so this is going to be a tricky question, did she help recruit you to go to Southern Illinois, or did you help recruit her after you were already in law school? It was absolutely <laughs> the former. So um, she had actually already been offered and had maybe not officially committed, but verbally committed to SIUC. At that time, I was actually still applying to law schools and looking for, for a, a home, I guess. Um, and so knowing that she was going to go down there, figuring that they had a law school, it didn't hurt to apply, happened to get a decent scholarship package, and then obviously reached out to Coach Alexis Mihalich, who was there at the time, um, asked her if she'd be interested in having me help out, and she was. So, I mean, it was just kind of a perfect fit. And then in my second year, um, after being there, was the year that I got that graduate assistantship and compliance. So, yeah, it was a busy time for me, but I think overall it really helped me refine the skills that allowed me to get this gig today. Now, how important was that to you, or I guess maybe interesting dynamic to you to be your sister's coach? You're the older sister, so you've probably been coaching her your whole life, whether you knew that or not, but to actually be in an official capacity. Yeah, actually, um, I, I would say that that relationship was maybe the second time that I'd been in that position. Um, her and I both ski raced very heavily, and there is a middle sister here that I don't want okay. to forget about, but <laughs> the three of us are very close. Um, I had coached the youngest sister, who was the one that went to SIUC when she was ski racing. Um, I think I was like 15 or 16, um, but anyhow, coached her downhill team. And so that relationship was similar. Um, during my time at SIU, I would say I wasn't as heavily involved with the day-to-day -day practice stuff, but in terms of traveling, in terms of just making sure that the players had what they needed to, to compete at their best, um, a lot of that carries over. And I wouldn't say that the family aspect of it makes it that much different. Okay. And then, so we'll, we'll circle all the way around now to, to golf. Kirsten did golf in college. She, she mentioned that, I guess. Like a lot of people, how did you get into golf? And then I, I know you, you golfed at, at multiple universities, and I think both in the United States and in Canada. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I've – shoot, I'm trying to remember. I think I was maybe five or six the first time my parents put a golf club in my hand. And, no, I wasn't like Tiger Woods, and I didn't love it right off the bat. <laughs> um, I started playing more regularly around age 10. Um Took a break when I was 11, but then when I was 12, just got the bug and got back into it. Um, we had some family friends at the country club I grew up playing at that had daughters that were college-aged. And I think my parents just being smart and knowing that that was an avenue to readily get golf scholarships as a female um, just really encouraged me to try and pursue my potential. And I, I, at heart, I loved ski racing at that age. So I was a dual sport athlete, maybe not realizing that down the road I would give up the skiing to pursue the golf. But I think it was about the end of my sophomore year in high school um, we kind of had a conversation with my coaches to figure out some of the season did overlap, um, especially with the dry land training required for skiing um, as high of an endurance sport at that, as that was. It was becoming difficult to manage that with some of the golf season and then also just trying to get away to take trips down south in the wintertime to keep the swing loose. Um, so it was really junior and senior year of high school that I focused on the golf and started getting into the recruiting 
aspect of things and just kind of fully committed to that sport. And then if I'm not mistaken, you started your collegiate career playing in, in Canada and then transferred to the United States, or is it vice versa? Vice versa. Okay. So I actually I started at a, a small school in Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, after, I'd say, the first semester of my sophomore year, transferred to a small school in Wichita, Kansas, and that's where the middle, middle sister comes into the picture. She had actually been recruited to play there, and then I ended up by default going there. Um, a little bit easier for the parents to come watch us at tournaments and send us down there with one vehicle instead of two. So um, just kind of worked out logistically. And then after my junior year in Kansas, I transferred back home and actually played two years at the University of Ottawa. So um, that experience was a little bit different. Uh, golf was considered more of a club sport back home than a NCAA. Um, we did have an intercollegiate tour and there were some good players that played on it. But I think overall, just in terms of my student athlete experience and um, the commitment from a team aspect and a, certainly a coaching aspect. I really miss that piece of my NCAA experience, and that's why I wanted to come back. Now, I, I ask th that because it, it's interesting. We talk about the transfer portal. We talk about the, the NCAA experience for a student-athlete. Having been a, a former student-athlete, do you feel that really helps you now in the role you're kind of in so when an athlete comes in, you kind of can – somewhat sympathized because you've been there yeah I think like have definitely having the student athlete experience but then also the transfer experience like understanding that student athletes transfer for a variety of reasons I think a lot of the times what we see is just kind of these big maybe headline sports or names where you know they're not getting enough playing time or there was a changing coaching staff like there's a lot of other reasons why student athletes transfer so that background definitely helped me personally maybe empathize with some of our student athletes in that scenario um, but then certainly I think the coaching aspect from from Carbondale's helped me see the other side of it in terms of roster management in terms of building team culture I mean these are all things that you, you kind of need both sides yeah. of that to get a full picture so I, I try to think of myself as being balanced somewhere in the middle um, there's usually two or three sides to every story and just trying to hear everybody out and again find a solution for for most people um, is the goal at the end of the day now one of the things I always find when I talk to our, our current golfers and former golfers is one of the experiences they like the most about being a golfer in college is the access they have to play some courses they probably would never get to play. We'll, we'll, we'll start here. A couple different questions. The first one is, when you were an athlete, is there a course you kind of remembered that was your favorite that you got to play at as a college athlete? Oh, I'm trying to think. I mean, we definitely, having access to a private country club at any point is, is a huge uh, advantage to have. Um, so, I, I mean, at both schools I played at in the U.S., I was very fortunate from that access, or from that aspect, to have access to those types of courses. Good practice facilities, obviously a well-maintained course, um, which does make a difference. You know what I mean? I think um, playing at a course where the greens necessarily don't roll as smoothly and then you're going and playing at, I mean, very nice Division One or Division Two courses makes a big difference. Um, I did a lot over the summer months as well just to make sure that I was playing in different areas at different levels to try and up my game. Um, I think that definitely helps keep you sharp when you come back in the fall and you're picking up tournaments in September. Now, since you've graduated, you, I know you play a lot. You still travel around with, with friends and family to play. What are maybe the one or two courses that, that you've been able to play post-college that that have been your favorites to play? I think one that I actually played, it was closer to Carbondale and Cape Girardeau, um, Dalhousie, is probably one of the nicest courses. Um, and then French Lick, I'd have to say, we played last year in Indiana, was another really nice one. Um, I wouldn't say that that's a regular trip for me to make, yeah. but in terms of just kind of nice one-offs, maybe once a year, those are two places that come to mind. Now, and then I know golfers, every sport has these things, but golfers in particular have a, a bucket list of courses they want to play at some point in time in their life. Is there one or two that is on, on your list that, you know, 
If nothing else, I want to play that course in before I quit playing golf. I don't know. I mean, I'm not that picky. Um, I, I would take any of the, you know, the TPC courses or any of the PGA courses. I think anytime you can get on a course of that caliber and try to go around a time where they're maybe just prepping or finishing up a tournament, I mean, and playing under those conditions that the pros play in, that's, I mean, that's a dream. I, I couldn't say that I'd pick one course over the other. Okay. And then I guess kind of in, in that experience overall there from the golfing experience, you talked about also being a downhill ski racer those different experiences what do you feel like they have kind of given you now as you move forward yeah well i think uh i don't know it's always tough for me to kind of get rid of the the legal lens um skiing obviously is a much higher risk sport than golf maybe um so i think just in terms of analyzing situations and figuring out ways that we can make the sport safer um, we've seen a lot of movement over the last decade with football and concussions. I mean, that's one thing that's very common thread-wise into to downhill uh, alpine. Um, from a student-athlete perspective, I would just say that my parents definitely did the right thing helping me um, develop my golf game because there aren't a ton of schools that have ski programs. Yeah. But, um, yeah, overall, I, I would say that that experience definitely helped. Perfect. Well, we appreciate your time joining us on the podcast today, Kirsten. Thanks so much, Rich. Appreciate it.